0: Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. There's no denying that a special kind of magic is sparked when sisters get down to business together. And there's no sister duo that exhibits that mystical chemistry quite like Kate and Laura Malevi. As the founders of the mercurial yet iconic Rodarte, the art-inflected fashion collection they created in their parents' kitchen when they were still basically kids, Kate and Laura are currently helming not just one of the most admired brands in the fashion universe today, but one of the most intriguing, Despite being anointed Vogue darlings pretty much from the get go, they credit Anna Wintour with giving them the best advice ever. More about that later. And taking on wildly popular collaborations with And Other Stories and Target, Kate and Laura have somehow managed to avoid surrendering to the public demands routinely imposed on muses of the moment. They didn't blow up on social media or massively scale their operation they didn't even decamp to one of the bigger fashion cities beyond their native Pasadena, California. Instead, they've steadily driven their company and their dreams to not only stay true to their brand, but also their impulses and roots as real artists. Beyond just red carpet famous clothing, the two have just debuted their first feature film titled Woodshock, starring and co-produced by their kindred creative collaborator and friend, Kirsten Dunst. Woodshock, which premiered at the Venice Film Festival last month and recently opened in theaters, tells the story of a woman emotionally unraveling right alongside the tension of the vanishing Pacific Northwest Redwoods. The film is quiet, dreamlike, spooky, and also tactile, not unlike their fashion. Most of all, it translates and propels the sisters' work as visual storytellers to a different dimension, because they're not just fashion designers or filmmakers or entrepreneurs or artists. In fact, if there were a new image of what a powerful young Renaissance woman could be, Kate and Laura Malevi of Rodarte would be it. Kate and Laura, it's so nice to meet you guys. Thank you so much for being guests on Unstyled today.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're, wait, is this our intro? Yeah, that's oh, fine.
0: Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, I actually like that. You launched in 2005. Mm -hmm. You launched Darte in 2005. Coincidentally, we launched Refinery29 in 2005. Oh, cool. It was just such a different time, even though it was 12 and a half years ago. But tell me about what was going on in your lives at that time and why it seemed like the right time to start your company. I
1: think Laura and I did everything so organically. We didn't really have a master plan in a sense. We had both gone to UC Berkeley and Laura had studied you know, English literature and I was an art history major. And we were interested in fashion. It's
2: weird to look back on it because I don't know if you have the same experience, but when I think about it, I thought, now when I make a decision about what I'm doing, or I'm much more aware of that decision. 12 years ago, it felt like I was deciding to do something very casual. Maybe because we were more naive about the actual industry,
1: it allowed it to be more free. I think some of my earliest fashion obsession really came from cinema because my mom would sometimes just say to us, Oh, let's take, you don't need to go to school this week. I want you to see all the Hitchcock films. To put it in perspective, when we first went to New York, for our first, the first pieces we made, we were in Los Angeles and we were encouraged to go to New York City. Laura and I had never been to New York. And when we got to New York, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even know what fashion week was. And <laughs> when we got here with these, like, I think we had eight pieces of clothing. I remember after- I read it was 10. It was all oh, 10. 10. 10. Kate always tells us the wrong fact. Just <laughs> to <don't> warn you. <laughs> when we got to New York City, we had made these clothes and we got here. We didn't know anyone. We were staying in our friend's apartment in the East Village and she was in art conservation school. So she would- go to Turkey for the summer, come back with like five stray dogs. We were in this cramped East Village apartment. Laura and I, New York for us, we didn't understand it. We didn't know how to how to get around. And we would call people, you know, just because we liked magazines, we would call the back, you know, and the The masthead. (laughs) Masthead. I had made handmade paper dolls, which were basically I'd made an armoire. And when you opened it, there was a little doll, and I had did all her dresses and little accessories. I would never do this now. And we it was so much work. And I and we sent them.
0: I don't believe that you wouldn't do that now. I bet you would. <sighs> oh, no. Uh, we you say that every time. few times. Oh, no. I like to I mean, say that. And we're, it's like You right. gave
2: everybody an armoire? <gasps> no, doll? there was like, like 15. And 15. I think we have one set. And I don't think anyone at the magazines actually got them. So if someone has them, raise their hand and tell us because we're looking for a set. And Autumn, we gave one to our our best friend, Autumn, and she kept it and gave it to us. And now um, I don't know what we did with it. So are I don't they know. Made, are they made of cardboard or? Like drawing paper. And yeah. then the armoire was made of nice. It was just like a constructed. I have a photograph of them. They're really beautiful.
0: I have to see that. They look
2: kind of old fashioned in a weird way. But we lo- we liked paper dolls when we
1: were younger. It was, you know, the most fun toy that we had. Um, oh, yeah. I still love them. I mean, anytime anyone gives me a paper doll, anything, I'm just like, I, I just love anything in a paper We doll were all for.
2: we're going to do a, an exhibit at the um, National Gallery for women in the arts in in Washington, d c. and we were just there. and we were thinking, well, what can, you know, what cool things can you do for the museum for the gift shop? And we were like, we have to do paper dolls. I
0: think there's also something about like, what it says about the preciousness of fashion. And paper dolls are something that you can handle, that you can actually play with. You know, and the paper dolls we had when we were kids, they came in these like books and you'd right. pop them out oh, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they were all very like heteronormative and like had like, you know, just like white skinny ladies with blonde and, hair. But and I'm sure little, they'd be much like, different now. Yeah, little tags that you Yeah, like. you could put the little dress on.
1: But we um, we sent those and... No one really got them. So when we were here, we were just kind of calling people randomly. And eventually, after about two days, Laura and I both said, no, this is a huge disaster. We should have never come to New York. This is not working what we were thinking because we just didn't we didn't know anything we had no money and then we we spent all
0: our money were you thinking you were going to stay in new york until you actually made contact with someone at a magazine so you were were, there indefinitely i think if i remember this right we just had i think
1: we had like a
2: big fake idea of what it means to come to a city you're thinking it's like the the movies oh
1: someone's gonna pick up your call and something will happen But you know what they did because yeah well that's what's crazy about the story is that literally probably the end point of when we were like this just didn't work we got a phone call from Women's Wear Daily, and they just literally said to us, "Just come down to the offices." We walked in, and within five minutes, uh, Bobby Queen at the time came in,
0: looked at our clothes, went and got Bridget. Bridget Foley came in, who's the nicest and most lovely person, Amazing. and so intelligent. And yeah, she's so cool. I love she's it.
1: out of an old movie. I always say she reminds me of our what's that film? Um, she's kind of like a she's character. kind of a Catherine Hepburn yeah. kind yeah. of yeah. like she's, Philadelphia yeah. Story yeah. kind of character. Totally. And she came in, and she's and she asked us all these questions and was looking at the clothes and then said, do you mind if we formally ask you questions? And we had never been interviewed at the time, so we didn't really understand that was happening. And then she said, we want to take your pictures, and we did that too. And two days later, I guess the very end of our trip, they called us and said, go to the newsstand. Like, how do you go to a newsstand? And, yeah, you're right. We <laughs> didn't even know how to go to and, a newsstand. I mean, we were so... I can't explain it. it was just like everything seemed so different and, and big. Well it was so
0: f- it was foreign to you. Right. I mean New York, I mean a New York newsstand is familiar to us, but yeah. to somebody from the outside. And I also just want to preface this by saying Women's Wear Daily for our listeners who don't know is is really the industry newspaper yeah. um, traditionally or historically in the fashion industry and it really is kind of like an
1: insider's bible type thing and at the time it was Because we didn't, before the internet and all those things, it was like the way that you would get kind of an inside track on
0: something. It was the baseline of everything in fashion.
1: So we go to the newsstand and we look and they had put us on the cover. And what we didn't know was that it was the day before Fashion Week, so people were
0: really reading it. She must have somehow portended that your work was going to find its way into the lives and experiences of these young, interesting, sort of professional actors. I think
2: it was a combination that we were from L.A. I think everyone was just like, what is L.A.? Like, New York didn't understand our city at all, which is fair. But it was kind of like, look, definitely we're... Look, looked down upon in terms of fashion i would say in terms say. of fashion and you know so, what i mean like so, but, it was
1: like weird jeans yeah and like
2: like yeah weird jeans and shirts and, and also stuff. at the time
1: people didn't know it's changed and evolved so much now it's kind of you can work and do what you want on your own terms but it really was a scenario of you didn't think about the type of design we were going to do coming from los angeles although there's been a huge history of it with galanos and certainly caught you know, Hollywood costume design was really the first medium to compete with Paris Couture, much more than, you know, ready to wear came after that. So in a sense, there's a really deep history of it in LA, but... Edith Head, right? But maybe
2: that's why she
1: conflated it. Yeah, probably. That's
0: how fashion was, high fashion was kind of seen. But do you think that when you saw it, when when that all happened, Mm -hmm. you know, probably in the span of 24 hours, Mm -hmm. did you like, acknowledge in that moment like we have a business now like we're doing this like was it true was it real for you then
1: yeah because we were like oh i guess we have to find a store now
2: because (laughs) i kind of feel like i've I've always been one of those people that's very non-committal so even though we have this business it's still like that question oh we're doing this but there's no 15 year plan to map it out i try to keep it as spontaneous as as we can because that's the beauty of being independent and getting to answer to ourselves and making
1: it as exciting as we can. Well, also, it's a, fashion's very creative. Yeah. I mean, we've said from day one, you know, we do this for artistic reasons. That's what we do. And if it wasn't that, then it wouldn't be the same thing for us. And I think back in that time period, what's interesting is, is we really didn't know just the things that make a fashion brand technically work in terms of getting stuff into a store, all those things. We had no idea. I mean, even know how to design like we made
2: those 10 pieces those are the first pieces we ever made mm-hmm. so it it was like a, a self-discovery process even our earliest years I think we were figuring out what do we like to make what what's natural to us um, what's us and I, I think just our background kind of set up the standard of saying the only thing that you can really put out into the world should be your unique viewpoint and that's what you can offer
1: but certainly that experience changed our lives because we went back to LA three week. you know in within three weeks Lisa Love the senior West Coast editor of Vogue called us in her office and said hey like she told someone in her office I just read about some you know girls from Pasadena I want to meet them we went and saw her and then a day later got a phone call from her saying Anna Winter is going to be you know in LA and she's going to come see you and come see the clothes and What did you think of, I mean, did you know what that meant? I did know, I do. That was so scary. (laughs) I've never spent more
2: time thinking about an outfit in my entire life. And I still, still now wouldn't think that much about anything. I just didn't know. It was like meeting the queen, you know, it's like. It is like meeting the queen. And I remember she was wearing this black Astrakhan fur Prada coat. Do you remember this with the embroidery and. And it was like, it's L.A., so it's 90 degrees outside in this black fur coat. She has
1: such tremendous physical presence. One of the most important things that we ever – has anyone ever told us is what Anna said when we first met her. And we said, well, do you think we need to move to New York? And she said – she looked at our stuff and she said, you know, I can tell what you do is really personal. And you're going to need to keep it that way. And you know what? That's what we've done the whole time. And I was like, I always think it's the best advice anyone's ever given me
0: I think you moving to New York like so soon after launching would have been it would have been a shock it would have
2: also not been a place that inspired me creatively and I think a lot of what we do involves California and it's just what I need around us and I need to be in nature and it's just something day to day I use as a way of creating
0: Earlier this year, you showed your collection in Paris for the first time. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to do that.
2: One of the things was that on a practical level, the place that we showed at out of New York was finally being torn down after, you know, they had been threatening it for about three years, and it was the old Dia Gallery downtown. So we were displaced. We didn't have a a new home yet for New York City Fashion Week, and
0: I'm sure it's a nightmare finding, like securing a place because of all the permits and I don't know. And
2: it's also looking for a place that has some type of personality that represents you. And our show producer, Alex Devatak, he had been saying for years to us, I really think that you should show in Paris. And I think Couture would be a great home for you. And I think at that crossroads, it was literally, I think, December 22nd. We got this amazing criterion film set from janice films and we were going through it and watching like seven samurai with our our mom and it was the holidays and instead of focusing on this amazing movie i'm like oh are we gonna do our show in paris <laughs> and we get this email from bureau Batak being like it's time and we're like oh no and it actually seemed serious at this point because we were like i kind of agree tell the part about this is the crazy part oh, i'm, go- I'm oh, going okay. to and then one day we came home and and we got this fan letter. And I don't know how anyone got our address. And we've never gotten a fan letter before. Really? We like maybe. maybe. We've gotten three. We've gotten we don't like get three. And we... Um, <laughs> I'm going to write you guys okay. a fan and letter. And we <laughs> opened it. And this person wrote from France saying, when are you showing in Paris? And we have it. It was like and a handwritten letter. It was a handwritten letter. letter. And we're like, oh my God, it's a sign. So we called up Alex and we're like, we're going to do it. And he's like so excited because... I think that he, as our show producer, just knew the creativity could bring out from that city into what we do and knew that the setting could be equally as romantic as our clothes are. And in New York, what we had done is say, like, there's this kind of gallery setting in which to show the clothes. And that's a little bit more removed feeling. And over, as we kind of got in the last few years, we started breaking that down and making it a little bit more organic in terms of this show set. So um, I think that the idea of getting to Paris was saying, let's fully embrace what our ideas are as designers in the set as well as in the clothes. So it was just the feeling of.
1: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor. Yahoo Finance.
2: Being at that show matched more the feeling we feel when we make the pieces.
1: And I think the acknowledgement of who we are as designers, in a sense, because, you know, one of the interesting things is, is that it's a, you know, delicate balance figuring out what your hand is, what you have to say, realizing that, you know, a lot of times we just, you know, Laura and I kind of don't read reviews of the shows and we kind of stay isolated in our own. And it's better that way because then you kind of take the steps I think that you need to take versus maybe what people think you should be doing. I've never had an experience on a show where I just, every time we would be working on a look, you know, when we are styling things and all that. So in the preparation leading up to it, it felt like working in my own mind on a painting and I just was enjoying it. You know, you do things for 10 years and it's really important to kind of change yeah. something. And... um I just think that's a natural part of creative evolution. You know, when you get very comfortable, the moment that you get too comfortable in anything is probably the moment that you're the least fun person in the world to be around.
0: The fact that you're talking about being unconventional in your approach to redarté, and also just the decisions that you make, do you look at it as a business with a business lens or do you worry about like you know sure. keeping the lights on and paying the bills?
1: Certainly it is a business. We've been, you know, we've been doing it independently for 10 years. And if you look at the track record of how that gets done, the facts are is that in, in this climate, it's almost impossible to be an independent designer. We act as CEOs of our
2: company, um, but my creativity is the thing that counts the most to us and that's what I would protect more than anything. But, and I think having that agency is such an important understanding of who you are. And of course I, I look at it as a business. I just think that's the secondary to me. And I'm I will totally be honest about that because those aren't my interests in life. So I like
0: to make things. That's where I get my joy, but there are qualities of that that actually like support and drive a business too. I think sometimes they're not necessarily you know maybe taught in business school.
1: I think they go hand in hand. I think what I would say too is about what Laura's saying is very true, but in the sense, the reason if if your creativity is your most important thing that you protect for what you're making then she's right. That's why we run our own business, because ultimately we are the protectors of what we do. To do that for as many years as we've done independently is, as I was saying, a lot of times I think it's funny when people don't acknowledge that side of us. I think, gosh, do you even know how crazy it is to do this? That's because
2: we're women. So I will say that. Yeah, I think so. 100%. Because I've been doing this for a very long time and it's just what it is. And if we were two men in this industry it would be a different story. The headlines would be different. It would be a different reaction to what we make and it would just what be do you different think the criticisms would be. I don't know if there would be a critique. Right now the critique would be something like, "Oh, it's not commercial or it's not wearable." And I'm, and I always think, "Well, we're making high fashion Who's, are we supposed to dress the entire population? It's it costs a certain amount of money. You know, people don't want to dress like everybody." So for me, that's a very interesting question
0: about why you make things and how it's viewed. I would love to to jump over to the film "Woodshock" that you both wrote and directed and produced with Kirsten Dunst. Tell me about how that film came to be. It was very immersive and yes. I loved it. And Thank And you. it was, yeah, it was really moving and it was creepy and weird, but also really beautiful. And it was almost like, your your clothes and your design had kind of multiplied into this clandestine community somewhere but tell us about the the birth of Woodshock.
2: Kate and I grew up in northern California and we were in a very rural area outside of Santa Cruz called Aptos and literally our street that we grew up on was a horse ranch an apple orchard and then an old growth redwood forest and I think since a young age the biggest inspiration we had was in our lives has been being able to play in that landscape and you, know, you just have a different relationship to light and to shadow and to time and that's what the film's about and we wanted to kind of make an experience that could maybe give you some perspective of what it's like to stand in the middle of one of those forests and to say that you know you can feel so isolated and this character that that we wrote and came alive with Kirsten you know was going through a very deep severe Period of grief and isolation, and then, but it's told through a very stream of conscious narrative and something that's very subjective. So it's all about her. I think of her as almost like Odysseus. She's like someone that's guiding you through this ancient story, and she's this great narrator. And it just happens to be
1: based on the the five senses. So she's very aware of what life is. Bringing to to life a story that um, centers around a female character. It was really interesting to kind of really let go of the idea of explanation and really just actually tell a story that was more about, I think, in a sense, agency, but also agency that's more about a stream of conscious version of it. So you kind of just see her doing things or thinking.
0: I also also thought it was really interesting that with the exception of the marijuana dispensary, it was hard to figure out where when it was. There was like a timelessness to the to the style and it could have been like the late seventies, it could have been the nineties, it could have been now. I wasn't really sure. Well that
1: was really important for us because the idea of a streaming consciousness and an experience that's subjective, we really felt like you needed to be in Teresa's world. This is a movie about where there's a real landscape, we're in shot at all in Humboldt, you're in these incredible redwood forest. Um, But it's also a mental landscape. It's how they experience the world. And this is really her world, her version of it. It's not her boyfriend's version of it. You know, we only get to know her boyfriend through her disconnection through him. That's it. The other people that she encounters, it's not their version of the world. It's really hers. And I think to do that we really made a point of trying to create a, a sense of dislocated time. So there were things like there might be a digital clock in one scene, but then you'd see in the pot shop there was no cast register. So we just did strange things. And also we shot a lot of the film through reflection, which is not something you might notice upon first viewing. We spent every day with, with our DP in the, in the
2: morning before shots or in actually because We shot a lot at night. We would spend like 30 minutes talking. Okay, here's our normal shot we would do, and then let's do the wood shock way. Certain things would happen. Like we would discover that the house that we were shooting in that's Teresa's was a house that a logging company's owner had, had made in the 50s, and then it was made out of redwood. So when she's touching the floor and thinking of her mom, like in those six scenes or the wall, she's rubbing a redwood tree or a past one. I think space became very interesting for us, and what she was walking in and out of is, you know, this idea of the mental landscape versus the physical. The idea is that she's kind of floating
0: through it all, I think. You obviously have a, a really long friendship with um, with Kirsten. What was it like? I mean, this is obviously like, you really share this film with her. Yeah. What was it like working with her on that?
2: Well, it was so exciting because we brought her into our process, and she brought us into hers, so it was... It was such a gift to work with someone that's so emotionally open. And as a fan of hers, I would say that what I admire in her work, and her body of work, is that she's such an innate, natural actor. And I think that's because she's completely open to other people. And she's this, I would say, a vessel of emotion. And essentially, we're making a silent film. Really, what we needed to have is someone that was so extremely expressive. And so having a person that's able to access emotions that I think most people are cut off from, but then not be weighed down by is really kind of a feat. And Kirsten kind of brought us into her, she calls her kind of like a, a life coach. She's, you know, maybe would be a traditional acting teacher, but not really, because she's about dreams and psychology and really teaching her how to access what she does and to harness it. And so we worked with her for a long time about this character so that when we got on set, it was just like a celebration of this, this person. And I, I think that we discovered Teresa when we were in Humble. She certainly became more alive because we were surrounded by these trees. We were isolated just like she was. I, I felt like the most intense
0: working experience, but the most wonderful. There was something about her that reminded me of Jenna Rollins from that Cassavetes film, Woman Under the Influence. I love that movie. There was something about her that I don't know if it was intentional at all, because I actually think the, the movie was so original in so many ways, but there was also some, like, Vim Vendors in there, too. A friend
1: of ours saw the film, Kathy Opie, and she said, you know, I really think this is about the idea of what it means to be sublime. In the nature of beauty and destruction. I said that is what we're exploring: whether sublime comes from grief, through violence, through love. And I think these are big to me. These are really interesting ideas that aren't really dealt with on screen for women as much. I think depending on your upbringing and you know
2: how open you are about your own feelings and things that you go through, there's a lot of things that are more taboo for you to discuss and to share. And everyone has a pocket of that and some type of internalization. Teresa is just so sensitive that her internalization turns so self-destructive. But that's a play on the idea that she's in this this landscape that was completely destroyed. So to go back to the idea of the redwoods, it's important to know that 95% of the old growth redwoods were cut down. So what you have left in today's day and era is the small pockets that are protected. And Teresa would have grown up in a time period where people were protesting that. And you still had trees coming down on the hour. And when a tree came down, you would feel it for miles. Is so that, that the woodshock? Wood shock? Yeah. So the idea of wood shock is, it was kind of twofold. Woodshock is that her condition, I think, this idea of being sensitive.
0: Oh, I thought it was the trees feeling of the shock like they would experience the stump well, yeah. would experience the shock of being cut down i actually googled it afterwards i'm like that must be what it but means you know
1: what that's a that's a, a really important and true interpretation i think what laura was saying is that for us it kind of became the idea of that there was a beautiful poem by that we liked for this person uh, writer was talking about how the deepest part of the forest is closest to the human Kind of sub unconsciousness, and we have a primal connection to it. So the further that we move away from that, the further we're kind of dislocating from our own humanity. That makes
0: me so depressed right now. And, and I think I know. I think, well, I think what's <laughs> what and what,
2: and the idea that this character, what she goes from the beginning is making this one assault against, and it's a, a choice and something that's very giving. But at the same time, she's doing something that's an act against this idea of mother and motherhood. And that is
1: a, a, you know, I think that's an analogy for the whole film. Someone saw the film and said to us, well, in a strange way, one of my favorite characters is, is the trees. And in truth, you know, one of the things that's hard to explain until you experience it in real life is that these trees are bigger than the Statue of Liberty. I don't even really truly have words for it. Essentially, they're giant ecosystems as you go higher and higher right? They have a life force, and they're telling you something. And I think it's our choice as humans whether or not we listen to what they're trying to say. I think the point we're making in the film isn't that there's a right or wrong. I mean, we live. In order for humans to exist, you almost have to destroy. It's a natural part of
0: it. There's something about when I was reading about the references to horror and the fact that the two of you grew up, you know, appreciating horror as a genre— would you consider it a horror film
2: in any way? A lot of people asked us, are you making a horror film? And they heard we were making a film. And I thought, gosh, our movie couldn't be farther from that idea really in terms of that general understanding. But I think what we brought to the table from our knowledge of what is interesting about horror and why we like it as a genre is that it's made of extreme awareness to all the senses. And I, I really think, you know, going into it, Something that's so successful about a horror film is you feel so isolated when you're watching it. You're really paying attention to what you're feeling. And I could watch a lot of films and I'm kind of just blissfully aware of what's happening. But in a horror film, the kind of the stakes are raised. You're, you know, there's a lot of tension. You have anxiety. And it's this idea of understanding what your fears are. In this sense, like, you know, we're dealing with questions of, you know, mortality and like the meaning of life and what we're doing to the planet. And I really think that that's the fear that we brought to the table with this film. And in order to show the extreme beauty of a landscape like these redwoods, I want we wanted to depict the power of them. To say, like, yes, Mother Nature is so beautiful, but what happens when you abuse it too much? Like, you know, we're all dealing with global warming. We're dealing with all these things. And there's a there's a consciousness to that. And we can't feel like we're the only people with these... Or the only beings that have the ability to think. You know, like what makes the world operate? We're all particles that kind of formed into what we are. So I think the idea is that horror is just an extreme way of really understanding the human emotion and the psyche.
0: Kate and Laura, it was so much fun talking to
2: you guys today. Yeah.
1: Thanks for having oh, us. Oh, thanks so much. This was so, so fun. fun. That went by too fast.
0: I hope you're inspired after hearing kate and laura malevi's story for even more unstyled extras check out refinery 29 or my instagram at christine barbrick you can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media and of course we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to the unstyled podcast on itunes and rate us while you're there you can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more and make sure to sign up for our exclusive unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week our show today was executive produced by Sarah Bernard and associate produced by Rebecca Easley. Copy support was provided by Elizabeth Kiefer. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with supermodel Miranda Kerr on the science and soulfulness of self-care.